Thank you for listening to Breakthrough Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more podcasts, news, and other events, please visit breakthroughlife.co.za. All right, good morning. Such an honor to be with you, Pastor John and the whole team here. Such an honor to get a little bit of time with you this morning. I love your nation. I love your nation for lots of reasons. You have the best accent in the world. I I have traveled to a lot of nations in my life, and you have the best accent globally. You have the best hunting globally. You have the best meat globally. Any nation that considers chicken a vegetable is like heaven on earth. I mean, it... It is unbelievable. So I, I love South Africa. Um, I've been here a handful of times, by no means an expert on uh, what God's doing here, but have a real passion to serve what God's been doing here for decades and decades. So I want to just um, share a little bit of maybe perspective with you this morning and then um, launch into the scriptures to kind of land that. But as John said, maybe just by way of introduction, I do live in Hawaii. I'm originally from Alaska. I've lived in the extremes of the United States and have been working with YWAM for the last 24, 25 years and uh, have seven kids, which is a ton of kids if you didn't know, and, uh, and is absolutely the best part of life. And uh, I have two of my kids with me. They're like, I don't know where they are. I just sent them off with a stranger this morning on some river, whitewater rafting. No, they're not with a stranger, but they are on some river right now. And my son is actually living in South Africa right now doing his uh, discipleship training school in Pachastrom, where we launched a YWAM base. And um, he's been here for a couple months. He's falling in love with South Africa. And he launches out to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan here in a couple weeks for three more months to share the gospel with the unreached. So, so much fun. And then my daughter's with me as well. And they're hanging out this morning, having a great time. But um, I was in South Africa a year ago. Uh, we did a couple of gatherings in different places. And I honestly was blown away by the hunger that we experienced here at numerous levels. I spent a lot of my life working with and pouring into young people, the next generation, particularly Gen Z, this generation that is sort of 23, 24 and under. And um, I, I, it's my favorite thing to do. I'm the number one fan of this next generation. I think it is a hero generation that is just learning that it has a battle to fight. I think it is, and statistics are beginning to show that it is already for believers in Gen Z, the most evangelistically and missionally inclined generation in history, possibly. So there, there's just remarkable things in the midst of also tremendous biblical literacy and cultural and sexual confusion and all of that going on as well. There is great hope as Gen Z begins to turn their heart to Jesus that we truly, I believe, are in the beginnings of another Jesus revolution that will touch the nations of the earth. And that it is this generation is pre-wired to carry revival, reformation, and a missions movement in their hearts and in their lives. And when I was here a year ago, I, I experienced that not only with the young people, uh, a really unprecedented level of hunger, but I also experienced it among the pastors, the business leaders, and the leaders that we spent time with. And to give you a little bit of context, part of what I do is um, is a gathering and kind of a movement called The Send. And The Send is large-scale um, stadium and arena events aimed at putting the Great Commission into the center of the conversation of global Christianity. We've been talking about a lot of things out there, but we've got to get back to the mission of the church, which is the Missio Dei, God on mission, and the Great Commission. And uh, we've been distracted. We've been distracted with lots of things, but the, one of the goals of these 
these gatherings is to put the Great Commission back into the center of the conversation of every boardroom, every church team, every family, every marriage. In fact, in America today, and I know this is probably not true of South Africa, but only 17% of churchgoers in America even know what the Great Commission is today. And you have to ask yourself the question, if you're going to church and not hearing about the Great Commission, what are you hearing about? What are we talking about? What does the church think the mission of the church is if it's not the great mission, the great commission? And so this is part of our passion. And we've been, for the last number of years, gathering in different nations. We started in Orlando, Florida. Um, honestly, on, on a word of the Lord, not sure if anyone would come, really stepping out in faith. We were stunned. 58,000 people showed up in that stadium, and we had the opportunity to call every one of them into their Great Commission calling, because it's not just about people with certain positions and titles and roles in the body of Christ. We've got to move away from that. It is the everyday believer is the hero of the storyline, right? Every believer stepping into their Great Commission assignment. And so out of that stadium, and as we've continued on calling people high schoolers to reach their high schools, university students, that their universities are not just a place to get a degree, they're a place to share the gospel, to make disciples, to walk out their missional calling, calling families to embrace the maybe the most vulnerable among us, uh, vo- children living in the foster care system, uh, vulnerable children that are, that are, you know, across our nations to break the cycles of the orphan spirit in our nation by engaging in some of these areas that it's been too easy to kind of be hands off and leave it up to the government and leave it up to the state when really this was the role of the church. And of course, one of our passions to call young people out of these gatherings into the nations of the earth. There are 3.2 billion people tonight that will go to bed without the hope of Jesus. And most of them have never heard his name before one time. And that is a tragedy and that is unacceptable to all of us. That is unacceptable to the modern church that there would be 3.2 billion people still largely waiting for their first encounter with the gospel message. We can change that and we must change that. And this was part of the aim of these gatherings. And so from there, we went to Brazil after Orlando. We were blown away by what God did there. We've been over our heads every single day of this journey. And we rented a stadium in faith um, eight months before the event. We launched the registration for this, uh, this stadium event. All of my Brazilian friends said, hey, Brazilians are last second. Like nobody's going to register, but don't panic. Like a month before they'll start, a week before they'll really start, and the day before it'll fill up. That's what they told me. I'm like, that is, that is so stressful. We launched the event uh, eight months before. I got a call, or our team got a call from the stadium. I was in Cairo at the time, and the team contacted me and said, hey, Andy, we don't know what happened, but in six hours, the stadium sold out. 70,000 people have registered. No bands, no speakers, no preachers, just simply one Instagram post that said the Send Brazil is open for registration. <laughs> they knew it was about the Great Commission, and that was it. It wasn't about a well-known preacher. It wasn't about a well-known band. It was about Jesus. Jesus and his mission to take the gospel across the earth. We didn't know what to do, so we prayed. We felt like the Lord said, rent another stadium. So we did. It filled up over the weekend. So we rented a third stadium. And when it came to the San Brazil, we were in three stadiums on the same day with 140,000 young Brazilians who believe that they have a role in the Great Commission all over the earth. Over 30,000 Brazilians 
declaring that they would go anywhere in the world for the sake of the gospel as foreign missionaries. Guys, we're living in a new day. When the stadium contacted us, they said, you broke the record for the fastest the stadium's ever been filled. We were like, what are you talking about? They said, well, the record was six and a half hours, and this sold out in six hours. We said, well, who held the record? They said, you two and Coldplay held the record. And I thought to myself that the Great Commission is filling stadiums faster than the biggest bands of our day. Are we truly heading into a new hour in Christianity? Fast forward through two years that no one wants to talk about. We've got too much trauma. Let's not even say the word. And then after that ended, we we landed in Kansas City and then finally in Norway. And the reason I wanted to share this is to draw a little bit of a parallel to some of what we've experienced over the last number of years to what I think is happening in South Africa right now. And I just submit this to you as someone who's not an expert on what's happening in your nation, but maybe someone with an outside perspective, extremely encouraged by the level of hunger in your nation right now. When we went to Norway, Norway is a secular humanist nation. Um, Christianity is small, and many would say in Norway that are not a part of the church, and maybe even some in the church, that the church is just continuing to lose relevance in society. Fewer and fewer young people coming to church whatsoever. When we set off on this journey, we faced tremendous pushback. In fact, every day for about seven months, we were in the media, and none of it was positive. And uh, they would translate these articles and send them to me. And uh, the primary accusation in the nation was that we were promoting a dangerous gospel. And then they would read these, you know, translate it, send it to me, and they would be quoting myself and some of our other leaders. And I would read these articles and go, dang, I just agree with everything they're saying. And I just thought, you know what? Keep printing it. Send it to more media outlets. If it's not a dangerous gospel, it's not the gospel. And um, as, as the pushback increased, it, their, their goal was to get every denomination that had come alongside the send to disassociate. And in fact, it had the opposite effect. By the time we got to the send Norway, every single denomination in the nation, including the Catholic Church, had unified together. Every denomination that still believed the Bible, I should say, unified together around what they believed was hope for the next generation. Not a brand, not an organization, but an excuse to unify and a faith that God was bringing spiritual awakening to a nation to that for many of them, they feel is spiritually dead. And this is what shocked me, is that secular humanism is so intense in Norway Europe has been leading that charge. America is going there much faster than Europe did, but many ways Europe was ahead of America in its tilt towards secular humanism. But what it has produced now is that many of these young people, 12, 13 years old, went to high school, and many of them thought that they were the only kid in their school that were believers. They didn't know another Christian. And they were alone in that. And they were told by their professors that God, God is dead. God doesn't exist. God's not real. They were told that you can be whatever gender you feel like. They were told you can express whatever form of sexuality you feel on any given day. They were told this by their teachers every day of their upbringing. And if they stood that test and actually stood on the truth of scripture and the love of Jesus, it began to produce in these young people something that decades of nominal Christianity could never create. It began to recreate the transformational seed of the gospel in a small but now growing and mighty seed of transformation. See, for far too long, we have put all the emphasis on the wrong lead indicators in terms of how the kingdom is growing. 
We put all of our emphasis on a recent election. We put our emphasis on economics. We put our emphasis on the size of our sanctuary. We put our emphasis on the, the size of our churches in our cities. We put the emphasis on the public face of Christianity. But this was never meant to be the lead indicator of the health and the vitality of the church. As soon as it becomes that, we've got our eyes on the wrong thing and we are a minute away from discouragement, hopelessness, and thinking that the kingdom is no longer moving in our nations. The lead indicator was always meant to be the quality of the heart bent towards our Messiah and our Savior. The lead indicator was meant to be the level of surrender in the church, not the size of the church. The lead indicator was meant to be the family and the living room more than the sanctuary and the gathering together of the saints. And what I began to see in Norway was hope that all of the nominal Christianity across the nation could never bring transformation because it lacks the potency of the gospel. And I would rather have 10 people fully surrender to the gospel than a million nominal Christians who don't actually believe it. And what I began to see emerging in Norway gave me great hope. I never was more excited about the rise of secular humanism in America until I saw this in Norway and thought, oh my gosh, the church was never meant to thrive in safety. As soon as we stop getting a measure of persecution for what we believe, you can set the timer on when nominal Christianity will begin to seep into the church. Now, here's what I think is so beautiful about South Africa. When I was here a year ago, we had a pastor's leaders, um, business leaders gathering. And the meeting went an hour and a half to two hours past what was scheduled. And I was blown away. And the main component of our gathering was communion. The main thing was taking communion together. It was the blood and the body of Jesus. And I was meeting pastors and leaders who had flown in for this gathering, who had driven hours and hours just to be there. People who had made sacrifices because they were just so hungry, believing that if I just got in the room, God might move in my life. And I thought to my own nation in America, where I feel like we're still too reliant on the public face of Christianity as the lead indicator, still hoping that an election could save our nation. Guys, elections have never saved nations. They are important. They're super important, but they're downstream from all of the other transformational components of the gospel in a personal life, in a family, and in a home. And in America, we're still putting too much hope in that. We're still putting too much hope in how's our nation doing based on our economics or how's our nation doing based on the number of churches or the size of churches. These are all important, but they're not the lead indicator. And because of it, we can still live in America a little bit like we're doing okay. There's still a lot of big churches. Did you see how big that church was? There's a lot of churches in our town. We're still doing okay. Like there's still a measure of, you know, whatever thinking or conservatism and this measure, you know, this part of society, we're doing okay. All the while, we are the frog in the boiling water, not realizing how difficult and ungodly things are becoming and living under the illusion that we're still kind of doing okay and we're not. I feel like there's a beautiful brokenness in the church in South Africa that is actually the greatest gift God could give you. Church in America, sometimes we still feel like we're in control. It's one of the biggest issues. I feel like the church in South Africa, you've already gone through so much difficulty. You've gone through so much corruption. There's so many parts of your life that are out of control, including your power going off all the time. There's so many elements of life that are just, you just can't control them. 
There's elements of, of government. There's elements of corruption. There's elements of economics and all of these things. They're sort of out of our control. And what it has produced is way more of a gift than you realize. It's been God's gift to the church of South Africa to be able to embrace that we are out of control. We are beautifully broken and we're not dependent on an election or economics to save our nation. We're dependent on a Messiah who 2,000 years ago today walked into Jerusalem, celebrated as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this is what I experienced a year ago. This is what I felt among the young people who have already experienced so much disillusionment. And that disillusionment, if responded correctly to, actually produces spiritual hunger. And friends, spiritual hunger ought to be one of the greatest lead indicators of a coming move of God. Not the size of the sanctuary, not the numbers of churches, not the number of people in the churches, but the, the amount of spiritual hunger in the heart of a believer is a sure sign that spiritual awakening is on the way. And I feel, South Africa, you are in a beautiful place, beautifully broken, beautifully out of control, beautifully re- reliant on a Messiah who is the only one who can save South Africa. And I want to honor your hunger. I want to honor your brokenness. Don't resist it. It's a gift from God. It's actually producing the transformational power of the gospel and the people once again. Nominalism is being obliterated. And nominalism is being obliterated across the earth right now. Apathetic, kind of middle of the road, nominal, cultural Christianity. And I tell you, in America, secular humanism is not our issue. Nominal Christianity is our issue. Can you imagine the early church hoping that an election would swing their direction? No, come on. Can you imagine the early church going, man, I hope the media represents us well today. These were not the lead indicators for the early church of the move of the kingdom. Can you imagine the lead indicator for the early church being like, how many people can I pack into my little tiny living room to have a big church? My big church is 25 because my living room is a little bigger than our neighbors. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine these being the, the psyche of the early church? Man, we are crushing it. Did you see that the government passed a law in favor of Christianity? We're killing it. No, no, no. It wasn't even on their radar. Persecuted, marginalized, thriving, transformational. The early church grew 40% every 10 years for 300 years. 300 years of 40% every 10 years. Why? The transformational power of the gospel. The lead indicators, the family, the home, their marriages. The lead indicators, their, their, their love for Jesus, their hunger, their reach, their enduring of persecution. The lead indicators, their brokenness, their hunger for God and his scriptures and teaching, their lives of prayer. These were all the indicators the early church had. And guess what? every 10 years for 300 years. Goes from a marginalized sect of 120 in an upper room to 10% of the Roman Empire. Unbelievable growth. I feel South Africa, you are postured for a move of God. You are perfectly postured, more than you realize, more than you know, because it's easy to take all of these things and get a little discouraged. You are perfectly postured postured for a spiritual awakening in this nation that would touch the next generation. And I believe there's a leadership calling on South Africa. And I don't think that's prophecy. I think that's fact. There's a leadership anointing on your nation to lead the continent and to lead into another massive wave of missions across the earth. 
Could it be that South Africa has an inheritance in every single nation on earth? And could it be that you're on the verge in the beginning stages of another spiritual awakening leading to a massive activation of the church, leading to a massive missions movement where an entire generation finds a reason to live, a cause worth living for and a cause worth dying for, way more than their incomes, their bank accounts, their safe living, but the Great Commission. I think you are perfectly postured for it. I'm so excited to even get to be here. We're, we've been in Pretoria the last two days. We'll go to Pachevstrom, which I understand is sort of like the middle of nowhere. And you're sort of like, where would you go? Why would you go there? I, I don't know, guys. I don't know your country that well. And then to Cape Town for our last couple of days. And part of this is also preparation because we're so excited to be bringing the sand to South Africa next year. And we're just believing that we could come alongside what God's already been doing here, come to serve, that this would feel that this is a South African-led movement and gathering, and our passion to see a young generation galvanized into their calling. So I want to jump into the scriptures here to further illustrate where I feel you are as a nation right now, and to hopefully further encourage you with how remarkable this time is versus how maybe just discouraging this time is. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, is an incredible picture into the life of Jesus. Does what I'm saying this morning feel like it makes sense? Yeah? Turn to the person next to you and go, it's an exciting time to be alive. It's really an exciting time to be alive. There's not another hour in history I'd want to be alive for than right now. And your nation is in such a special place. Let me say this last thing and we'll jump into this. I spent a lot of time in Brazil. I would say Brazil is probably the largest youth movement on the earth today. It's just undeniable. They have gone from a few million to 70 million evangelical believers uh, in the last number of decades. And uh, the, the hunger of the young people is, uh, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. As I was in South Africa last year and again this year, I feel South Africa is in the beginning stages of what led to this Brazilian spiritual awakening, to this hunger, this zeal in the hearts of young people. I feel the similar rawness, the similar hunger here. And really, Brazil was driven there out of desperation. Brazil, considered by many to be one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Uh, Brazil dealing with so many difficult societal issues, uh, many complexities. You guys are familiar with complex societal issues. And I feel that what drove Brazil to that level of hunger and spiritual awakening were these things. They, they found God in prayer. They found God in the secret place. They found God in their families. They got hungry for raw God, not just pasteurized, pasteurized or processed or homogenized God where it's barely even recognizable any longer. They got hungry for raw God. We want him as he really is. And I feel the same stirrings here in South Africa. It's the same rawness, that longing for God that I'll fly across the country for a gathering where God might meet me. I met a young man who came to Pretoria from, uh, he flew there from, I can't even remember where he came from, another part of South Africa, flew hours to get there. And I'm like, why did you come? He goes, I just thought God might meet with me if I came. I thought, wow, if this hunger was in America, we would be in a different place. But this is where you are. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. It's a slice, kind of a picture of a day in the life of Jesus. It says here that Jesus went through all the towns. Of course, it's a specific moment where he says specific things, but also a picture of what many days in the life of Jesus were like. 
Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Very next verse, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, heal every disease and sickness, and then he sends them out. Now this passage is, um, I think, profound on many levels, but to really understand how powerful what Jesus says and does, we kind of need to get a picture of what Jesus was seeing because it's the sights and it's the smells and it's the setting and it's the context that give power to the statements and the actions of Jesus. And sometimes we're so far removed from 2000 years of history that it's hard to really understand what he saw and what he felt and therefore how powerful his responses and his actions were. It says that he goes through the towns and the villages. Now, most historians would say that 70% of Israel was living below the poverty line in Jesus's time. In fact, they were living in abject poverty. So you're talking seven out of every 10 homes by the definition of poverty is lacking sufficient resources to thrive. So they don't have quite enough food. They don't have quite enough shelter. They don't have quite enough resources. And because of it, they're a little malnourished. They're a, they're a little underdeveloped. They're, they're suffering as a people. That's seven out of every 10 homes. That's overwhelming. So as he's walking through those streets, you got to know seven out of every 10 families is living as a re, in the results or the byproduct of poverty. We're talking about anxiety. We're talking about discouragement. We're talking about hopelessness. We're talking about no hope for the future. All the things that poverty creates in a mindset. And that is rampant in Jesus's time. He's not just walking through nice, clean streets. He's not walking through a nice neighborhood. He's not in a suburb. You know, he's not just enjoying himself and it's beautiful and the birds are singing and kids are on their bikes rolling around. Like he is seeing difficulty, suffering, and poverty. That's what he sees. Then it says he's teaching in their synagogues. Well, how many know that, that walking into a synagogue in Jesus' day wasn't like walking into church this morning. There wasn't an epic worship team and a whole bunch of people that passionately loved Jesus, right? There wasn't a youth group on Wednesday night that was going after God together. No, we're talking about this system. There are some people that are, are of course, are legitimate God-fearers and, and really are carrying love for God, but many of the synagogues and much of this religious system in Jesus' day is putting a heavy burden on a people who are already heavily burdened. Extra laws that are made up that weren't even from the scriptures. They weren't even from the Torah. They made up all these extra rules and laws. All of this kind of oppression from the religious system. Most of it was dead works. Most of it is kind of just going through the motions without a lot of vitality or a lot of life. So this is the synagogue or the church that Jesus is walking into. Okay, so he sees this on the streets. Now he walks into the church and it's not necessarily a beacon of hope. At all a beacon of hope. Then it says that he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and he's healing every disease and sickness. Now we often read that verse and just get really positive and excited as we should. But we don't often realize that in order for Jesus to heal disease and sickness, he had to be among the overwhelming population of sick and incurable illnesses. 
And he's not walking through a nice sterile hospital meeting with one patient after another. He's not in a nice air-conditioned church saying, hey, why don't you line up in the front and I'll pray for each of you one at a time. No, he is in a society where if you have an incurable illness, illness, your only hope in life is to beg for your livelihood. So if you've been in developing parts of your own country, of course, or developing nations around the world, you will find that these busy thoroughfares are lined with people with incurable illnesses. And it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. The smell of sickness, the sight of sickness, the hopelessness of incurable illnesses with no great hospital care, no great health care. In my nation, health care is a big deal. A lot of people complaining about health care. This is a different story in health care in Jesus's time. And of course, he's healing them, but to heal them, he's got to be among them. And that among is overwhelming. Overwhelming for him, I'm sure, but way more overwhelming for the disciples even. As they're walking these streets going, is there any hope for our nation? Of course, they're seeing hope as people are being healed. Then it says he looks up and he sees the crowds. And he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he looks up at the common person. He looks up at culture. He looks up at the average person on their way to the market, on their way to work, on their way to pick up their kids, on their way to school, whatever it may be. And he looks up at them and his 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 impression is they're harassed and they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It doesn't take much of a deep dive into the times of Jesus to realize that pretty much everyone in society is oppressed by someone else. The Roman government is oppressing most of the known world at that time. They're an oppressive government, extremely unjust in many ways. Then in local, you know, Israel, you have their own leaders who are, you know, a blend of Romans and Jews kind of coming together and they're extremely oppressive. They're just living in their ivory towers. They don't give a care for the common person. Then you have the Jewish leaders oppressing the followers of Judaism. You have men for the most part oppressing women and you have adults for the most part oppressing children. And you realize pretty much at every level of Israeli society, oppression existed. So Jesus looks up at this. You also know from the times of Jesus that um, racism is off the charts. The Samaritans hate the Jews. The Jews hate the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans, for the most part, hate the Romans. The Romans hate the Jews and the Samaritans. So much ethnic division, so much hatred in society, right? All of this is going on. This is what Jesus is seeing. This is what he's feeling. This is what he's hearing. This is what he's smelling. And all of this had to be remarkably overwhelming. Imagine walking down the streets of Jesus's day. Poverty, racism, division, brokenness, dead religion, sickness. Many would define this scene as hopeless. What's so remarkable when you really get in and try and feel what Jesus felt, to then read the next sentence is absolutely counterintuitive, illogical, and irrational. Jesus looks at all of this and declares the harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. How often do we read our own headlines and lose a little bit of hope? How often do we walk down our own streets and ask the question, God, is there any hope? How often do we see what the next generation is doing and go, oh my Lord, what are they going to do next? Right? How often do we see what the lost are doing and go, unbelievable, I cannot believe what the world is doing, as if they can act like a man they've never met. As if they can live differently without the transformational power of the gospel. It's funny how, how mad we get at sinners for sinning. 
We get so frustrated at the world for being worldly. They have no other option. There's no way out except for our Messiah. So Jesus sees all of this, and often we're seeing and feeling some of the same things. You feel this in South Africa. Some of the same exact sights, impressions, and feelings that Jesus had in Matthew chapter 9. You feel those things on a daily. And yet Jesus looks at all of this. I don't know if he got a little smile on his face and went, wow, the harvest is ripe. If I only had laborers who believed it. You realize if Jesus could look at the very nation that was about to crucify him with more religion than we've ever seen, animosity, division, and all of that, and he could declare that the issue is not ripeness, the issue is laborers, then you realize that it has never been a ripeness issue. It's always been a laborer issue. If Jerusalem was ripe for the harvest, how many of you know South Africa is ripe for the harvest? If Israel in Jesus' day was ripe for the harvest, how many of you know Johannesburg is ripe for the harvest? And all God needs is a few people who can lift their eyes in the midst of the crisis and the tragedy and the difficulty and have his perspective more than media perspective, headline perspective, social media perspective, economic perspective, governmental perspective. We need heaven's perspective. To be able to look up in the midst of that and declare the harvest is ripe. And I tell you, when we begin to declare that, something changes in our hearts. And the laborers begin to arise. One of the greatest things we need in this hour is hope. We need hope. You've heard this terrible saying. I think it's totally demonic. Don't get your hopes up. Find me a Bible verse. Find me a Bible verse. Don't get your hopes up. The fear of disappointment doesn't exist in the kingdom. Don't get your hopes up. It's straight from the enemy. Friends, get your hopes up. Get your hopes up. God is moving in South Africa. Get your hopes up. God is moving in the next generation. God is awakening Gen Z. He is moving in the heart of this generation in front of us. We have to get our hopes up. And this is part of the very perspective of the kingdom. The second thing I find so profound about this moment is that Jesus looks out at all of this brokenness and declares the harvest is ripe. And that's miraculous. That's a miraculous Holy Spirit-led perspective, right? But then maybe equally miraculous is he looks back at his 12 disciples and goes, and you're the solution. I don't know which was harder to believe. Jesus is between a rock and a hard place, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, getting their mothers involved in the conversation. There's no hope on either side of Jesus, and yet somehow on both sides of him, he sees hope. In the Old Testament, often when God moved, he found three types of people. He found a priest, he found a prophet, or he found a king. Not all the time, but many times you see major advancements. It's through God raising up a prophet, Elijah, Elisha. It's through him raising up a king, David, Solomon. It's by raising up a priest, And these three types of people are often how God is moving in the Old Testament. This moment in history is one of the most history-shaping, altering moments in the entirety of the Scripture. Because for the first time, Jesus looks out at a massive need, harassed and helpless. But he sees a ripe harvest field. But he changes the game forever. And he goes, hey, 
I'm not looking for someone with a title this time. I'm not looking for someone who calls themselves a king. He goes, I'm not looking for someone who society has named a prophet. And I'm not looking for someone who just happens to be in a priestly line. He goes, I'm changing the game right now. He goes, I want fishermen. I want tax collectors. I want young people, a little immature, a little bit broken. And from this day forward, they will be the solution to the crisis. And he changes all of human history in this moment. Guys, it's wild how often we go back to Old Testament theology. And we go, God, if you could just raise up a pastor, our city would be changed. God, if we just get a great evangelist to come through, we could see some real breakthrough. God, just raise up a prophet. If we had a prophet, we could see a real breakthrough. Lord, if the worship team could just write the song that unifies the church in our nation, we could finally have unity. And we do the same thing. We're propping up these positions with our hope instead of looking in the mirror and going, we're the hope. We're the hope. In our immaturities, in our little bit of dysfunction, in our insecurities, to look in the mirror and realize there isn't someone else. Guys, we're always waiting for someone else, another room. Friends, you're the room. You are the ones. Look at the person next to you and go, you are the one. You really are the one. And to me, this was as miraculous as Jesus' declaration of a ripe harvest field over what's in front of him. It's him turning to them and going, I'm going to give you power to bring my gospel into this mission field. And he's doing the same thing today. You are the answer for South Africa. And you may feel a little insecure. Welcome to the club. I feel it every day. You go, I, I'm not a speaker. Great. We don't need more speakers. I'm not a worship leader. Fantastic. I'm not sure we need another. I love worship leaders. We want great worship leaders just like we had this morning. But I'm not sure everyone in this room needs to be a worship leader. How about some educators? How about some moms raising seven kids like my heroic wife? Who's probably done more for the kingdom than I've ever done with a microphone that we would change our perspective and realize that you showing up to work tomorrow is bringing the kingdom. You showing up to school tomorrow, bringing the kingdom. You are the answer. You are the solution. You are the hope. The last part of this, I think maybe might be the lead indicator. When I look for the beginnings of spiritual awakening, both in history, but even today, is that when Jesus sees all of this, he's not frustrated by it. And I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to get frustrated by the brokenness of the world around me. Instead, Jesus, it says, he's moved with compassion. This is an unbelievable clue to spiritual awakening and the release of the kingdom. This love that Jesus moved in is not a natural love. It's not a human love. It's not something we can muster up. It's entirely different. The best way is I thought about this over the last several years, trying to understand just even that word compassion. And honestly, I feel my wife's taught me more about that than anyone. Is that Jesus moved in a unique love that I would call adoptive love. Jesus looked at a broken world that he had no hand in. He didn't cause an ounce of the sickness He didn't cause an ounce of the sin. He was not responsible for any of the brokenness. And he looked at all of this brokenness that he had not caused. And yet he fully took responsibility for it. He adopted a brokenness he hadn't caused as if it was his own. 
See, we've often defined the high bar of maturity, especially if you're a parent, as taking responsibility for your own actions. If you get there, you're the greatest parent in the world. You're like, you put your own plate away? Unbelievable. And at that point, you're just like, greatest parent, get me the mug, get me the shirt right now. I have arrived. My children took responsibility. They did their own laundry before they were 20. This is a breakthrough beyond anything I imagined. And we've defined that. We've set that bar. If we'll take responsibility for our own actions, that's maturity. And I would say, yeah, that is maturity, but that's the low bar. That's kindergarten maturity. Real maturity is when we take responsibility for someone else's actions. And Jesus looks down at a brokenness he hadn't caused and takes responsibility for it. This is the love that Jesus moves in right now. Harassed, helpless, full of division, hatred, racism, poverty, sin, and sickness. And he goes, I didn't cause any of this, but I will fully take responsibility for it. This kind of love is the lead indicator that something is stirring in a nation once again. When the church begins to move in adoptive love, three of my children are adopted, three of my seven, three of them out of the foster care system. One of them, I have an 18-year-old who's here, and as of six months ago, I have a newborn. Well, it was not in the cards. I didn't think. In fact, I thought I was a two-kid fam- dad. I just thought, we're missionaries, we travel a lot, I want to drive a decent vehicle my whole life. We had two kids, boy and a girl, I thought, man, we have arrived, perfect family, we got a boy, we got a girl, you got one, I got one, we can play man-to-man defense, you know. (laughs) Everyone knows that's the most effective defense, and then I thought, I'm just high-fiving my wife, isn't it great to know this is our family? Like, I'm so happy, and I saw the look in her eye, I was like, wait, you're not, you're not done. And she wasn't done. She had way more capacity for love. I guess I had more than I thought I did. We had three children. We ended up with four children. Long story short, adopted a first little girl out of the foster care system. Long story short, adopted a 13-year-old out of the foster care system. And then six months ago, this is classic. I feel like the uh, we have this, it's called uh, DHS. It's Department of Human Services in Hawaii in America. You have your own version of that. And every time I travel, I feel like they know. Somehow, like they have a GPS locator on me. And when I travel, they're like, my wife, they're like, she's weak. Let's call her. So they do, they call her and it's like, it happens so often. I always joke around and come home to more children than I left with. And it's happened more than once now, wait more than once because of the number of kids we've reunified in the foster care system. So six months ago, I'm in Korea and I get a text message, not even a call. You'd think she'd have the decency to call, but I get a text message. Hey, I got a call. A homeless mom didn't know she was pregnant, meth addict, went into labor got rushed to the hospital, had no idea if she was even pregnant, gave birth to a little girl, left the hospital, never touched her, never named her, just took off. She's been abandoned at the hospital. This is the text from my wife. She goes, I think we should take the baby. I'm like, unbelievable. (laughs) Can we talk about this? And she always says this. She says, we should pray, which is code language for she's already heard the Lord, but she's praying that God would tenderize my heart to hear what she's already heard. That's, it's code language. I get it. And then she throws the next thing in, which I already know. It's like, it's total, it's not manipulation, but it is manipulation. She goes, we should ask the kids to pray. I'm like, yeah, we all know where that's going to go. My, my kids don't even pray anymore. Literally, when we took our first uh, girl in, she was 15. She came out of a psych ward. She was suicidal and she came right into our home. And we had this, you know, we put 
prayed about whether we should do it because you shouldn't always do that. You really, these are things you weigh. Not everybody has the grace for this, and I would never say that. But as we were praying about this, we pulled our family together. My girls at the time were probably uh, 10 and 12, my two oldest. And I go, hey, we got to pray about this. I explain the situation. My girls look at me. They go, we're not praying. They go, we're making cookies. She needs a home, and we're a home. And I was like, yeah, yeah of course, of course. Right. Yeah, I already heard that too, guys. Like, unbelievable. So my wife's like, we should pray. I'm like, yes, yes, I know you already heard. She's like, we should get the kids to pray. I'm like, yes, we already know what they're going to say. So about five days later, I arrive home to our now newborn who has been abandoned by her family. No dad in the picture. Has no name. She's nameless. And to this day on her birth certificate, it still says baby girl. My daughters, when she gets home, go, she's absolutely getting named. We don't care if we can legally name her. We're going to name her. And so they pray. And my daughter who's with me on this trip feels the Lord says to name her Jaira after Jehovah Jaira, because the Lord is going to provide for her, though the world looks like it abandoned her. And this little six-month-old now, Jaira, is still with us and most likely is going to lead to another adoption. Like, a seven kids, how did we get here? We, we're not, we don't even fit in a decent minivan. That was the first death I died was a minivan. And, and now I'm like, where do you go beyond that? I mean, we may as well, I don't, we're basically Mormon or something now. I don't know. Like, you, you got to get a van that is just like, no man should have to drive the van that I'm going to have to drive soon. No man. No, no man should have to die that much to his ego. We should allow, be allowed a little bit of decency as men. It's all out the door at this point. But this little girl, I have not part of the reason that her mom got pregnant while on meth and homeless. I am not part of the reason that her dad is not in the picture. I am not the reason that she got abandoned at a hospital. But I can become part of the reason that she would have a father the rest of her life. That she would have a family the rest of her life. And though I did not cause this mess, I can take responsibility for it. And this love, this adoptive love, is at the very core of a church that is moving out of safety into vibrancy, into fruitfulness, and into the transformational power of the gospel. And again, it's my wife. I made that really clear. I feel this is the church of South Africa. Why don't you stand with me, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hand it back to Pastor John to anything he feels to do in ending, but I feel you're so ripe as a church, as a nation, where God is shifting the perspective from we're just broken or we're just corrupt or we just have insolvable complexities because they are hard. He's changing our perspective where the church of South Africa is going to declare with great hope the harvest is ripe. Next time load shedding happens, just say it out loud. The harvest is ripe. The next time corruption is exposed in the media, just say it out loud. The harvest is ripe. The next time crime breaks out in your neighborhood, on your street, just declare it. The harvest is ripe. The next time you walk by abject poverty and you feel the brokenness of it, just declare it. The harvest is ripe. And then realize there's not someone else. It's you guys. You are the hope. In our own immaturities and insecurities, you are the hope. Your own fears. All of those things. Same things the disciples had. You are the hope for this nation. 
And I feel God is about to absolutely baptize this nation that has gone through so much pain in its history to lead the world in what adoptive love really looks like. Because you've got a lot of reasons to not move in that. A lot of reasons to step back and go, I didn't cause this mess. A lot of reasons to go, I'm not part of the reason we're where we are. I'm not part of this brokenness. I'm not part of this corruption. I'm not part of, I wasn't even alive in some of the painfulest moments of our history. But if South Africa could do this, the whole world would pay attention. The whole world. And could it be that South Africa is carrying a healing anointing for the most difficult places in the world? where their complexities have led them to a place of hopelessness, what if South Africa got hit with supernatural, adoptive love and goes, we may not have caused this, but we will take responsibility for it. May not be the reason there's poverty, but I will take responsibility for it. And may not be the reason there's corruption, but I am taking responsibility for it. It may not be the reason that there's lostness, but I am going to take responsibility for it. And what would happen if South Africa would rise into that level of adoptive, extravagant love? I'm telling you, you would prophesy to the nations that there is no place too hard, too complex, and too difficult. And your spiritual awakening would be life to the nations of the earth. So Holy Spirit, I want to pray right now that you would release supernatural hope in this room. I'm asking for a hope that defies the headlines, a hope that defies circumstances, God. And I'm asking that hope would lead to real action, real action towards real brokenness, which is sometimes bigger than all of the masses maybe calling themselves a Christian might be more powerful that a few would take action in the most difficult places of the nation. Father, I'm asking adoptive love would spring up like never before. That compassion, that deep-seated compassion in the heart of Jesus would become the deep-seated compassion and love in the heart of the South African church. God, I'm praying, would your leadership anointing fall on this nation, God? Would you anoint the beautiful brokenness of the leaders and the people of this nation? Would you anoint the beautiful brokenness of the church? And would you release your power, God? Would you release extravagance, extravagant love, adoptive love, compassion, Father. Would you activate the church of South Africa like never before? And God, we're praying together for a real youth awakening in this nation. 13-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds coming to radical faith in you, Jesus. Would you turn the tide of secularism in the nation, Lord? And would you awaken a generation to the reality of Jesus? And when they move in great action and great compassion, Father. So we just believe the this morning, Lord, we're putting a stake in the ground that we will be a people of hope and we will be a people of action, God. We're putting a stake in the ground that our circumstances will not dictate our report on the kingdom, but that the lead indicator will be the hunger of our hearts, our love for Jesus, and our willingness to take action. In Jesus' name, amen.